We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Hello, you're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast bringing you big ideas from our beautiful island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station, so head to edgeradio.org.au for more information about the good things they're doing. My name is Dr. Neve Chapman and I'm joined by my co-host Anna Abella. And we'd like to begin today's episode by acknowledging the traditional owners of the land where we're recording, the Palawa and Pakana people, as we record on Lutruwita. And we also acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and where you're listening. On behalf of everyone, I pay my respects to elders past and present. So Anna always brings us wonderful guests that are a really nice merge of science and creativity. And today is no surprise that that's what we'll be delving into again. So Anna, can you tell us a bit about today's episode and our guest? Uh, So today we'll be talking about soundscapes, radiophonics and how our guest Dr Julia Drawan uses her deep understanding of these topics in creating her artwork. Awesome, I love it. So tell us a little bit more about Julia. Julia is from France originally, uh, but she is now living and working in Tasmania as an artist and curator. Her work has been shown all around the world. Uh, She completed a PhD in aesthetic sciences and technology about radiophonic psycho geography and the art of walking it's that a mouthful <laughs> so interesting I have no idea what that's about <laughs> <laughs> which I guess is a launch into Julia hello uh, hi everyone <laughs> do you want to explain your PhD I mean it sounds fascinating I've got no idea yeah usually PhDs sounds fascinating and nobody has no ideas <laughs> but mine was about the impact of broadcast in public space, because I was interesting in interested in radio practice. But my focus was to study and observe what does radio activities impact uh, or does to citizen in public space in Paris. So I was working within a team of friends, and we would go and occupy a garden or an abandoned building or go in the catacombs, illegal catacombs parts, <laughs> and yeah, record different people, uh, a sound artist at the time, live performances, and also vox pop in the streets. S- and um, so my PhD was about the movement of those kind of sa- sound activities, so it was radio broadcast and the art of walking, because it's a big uh, thing I guess in the history of uh, in France in the 50s when some artists uh, Guy Debord they were trying different experience or Luc Ferrari a uh, sound artist would uh, use the walk as a tool of creation the walk itself uh, and that's how they started to bring or to take out the music out of the studio out of the wall so they would go for walks and take some portable recorders and start to pay attention to human and more than human activities in the public space. Uh, insects, um, electromagnetic frequencies. And that was possible because they were interested in getting out of the studio and look around, listen around, instead of uh, maybe just sitting too long into um, a sterile, <laughs> controlled environment. Uh, yeah, so that was my PhD about that. So, uh, which gave me the opportunity to meet a lot of people I was adoring, mm. 
Like I really admired some of those people and the doing a PhD made me confident to meet to contact them and ask them questions. Uh, so they would take me seriously because I was quite young and they were quite old. <laughs> <laughs> so what was the inspiration behind pursuing that as a PhD and trying to gather all of that information? I did my master in France and in Greece and my supervisor was really inspiring and I would go in art residencies as well with him. So it, w- it was really a, a motto. Oh yeah, my it was a role model. Yeah, a role model for my uh, to nourish my brain, <laughs> and I need a lot of activities. So I followed his advice, which was you should apply, you should apply, and you should do a PhD <laughs> because you're good at what you do, and it's an interesting cross disciplinary research you're doing. And at that time, it was the first PhD based on uh, practice. It was not only a s- theory. And I wanted to be a doctor because my dad and my grandfather are doctors, they're dentists, <laughs> and I always said that I would be a doctor as well, but uh, just to, you know, kick their ass a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> the sound doctor. Yeah, and yeah. so when I did my PhD, I finished it, and I sent my PhD to my grandfather, who is a, who was a dentist. And he was so proud of me and he weighted my pile of pages and somehow I did some calculation, blah, blah, blah. But at the end, it was connected with the number 21. Mm. And so he said, this is the weight of your soul, (laughs) 21 grams. (laughs) And, you know, he said, oh, that's the trace you will leave when you leave. And yeah, it was really interesting how a book or research made me connect with my family, with making new friends. Yeah, just giving me a lot of new opportunities to explore and and collaborate. Mm, I love that because I think one of the things that I enjoy most about like when I did my PhD is that it does give you this little bit of street cred so that you can approach all these people that you would love to, but you don't really have a reason to. Whereas it's just this, I don't know, a very deeply personal journey for you to just find out everything there is to know about a niche that you're really passionate about and to learn from some of the smartest or most talented people in the world who work in that area and I think that's what's not often talked about in a PhD but it is a really exciting component. Yes yes it is yes because I mean really spending hours reading books and collaging texts and making sense in your brain that's quite painful (laughs) (laughs) But (laughs) but the meeting people is the best yeah. yeah, and everyone's so passionate because you're talking to them about their key thing. And I found I really f- like fed on that by the end. And when students maybe ask me now about why should I think about doing a PhD, it looks painful. And I'm like, it is, it's painful, but you'll never have the same amount of time or opportunity to just invest in yourself and for people to be so generous in that investment too. And like, so it's what you make of it, I think. And this has gone across different countries for you as well, hasn't it, Julia? Yes, yeah. yes. And it just gave me this, um, yeah, as you say, credit to approach different people and then being being approached as well by festivals or academic structures to give a talk or do a, a workshop or be part of a conference. So it's also interesting to, I mean, to have the privilege to navigate between art world as maker and the academic world as speaker which for me it's kind of the same but I mean it's nourishing both way but it's not always easy to access neither of those worlds so I think the the doctor title helped me to 
to be more also firm about my expertise as a doctor in the arts gave me the confidence to ask what I want. Well, you're listening to That's What I Call Science and we are talking to Dr. Julia Drouin about her amazing work and interesting PhD. Can you please stick with us for part two and we'll delve more deeply into the themes of Julia's work and explain things like what radiophonics means for those like me who may not be aware. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we are talking about radiophonics and soundscapes. My name is Anna Abella. I'm joined by Neve Chapman along with our expert guest Julia Jouin who is a Tasmanian-based artist and curator. So we were speaking a little bit before about your PhD which is fascinating and how you've kind of been able to approach people and go to different countries and all sorts of things with it but we haven't spoken about your artwork yet (laughs) and something that I love about your work is how you create and transform sound which is something invisible into something that's more tangible. We see this in your exhibitions Sounds of Chocolate, Sweet, Tribology and more recently Crush. So how do you, how can you take something that's sort of abstract and invisible like sound and turn it into a physical object and not only physical but something that you can eat a lot of the time yeah I love food (coughs) eating (laughs) is one of my life pleasure but what I'm interested in via sound observing and collecting and collaging I really feel actually like sound sound is like play-doh for me so it's it's like bricks and blobs of pockets of time that I put together and it's nearly like when I edit sound that I recorded, I feel I'm actually making a sculpture. It's really visual in my head. It's, it's, it transforms into colors and shapes and weight. And I, th- I think I was always interested in that correlation of what can you feel when you hear because it's invisible so, and it's very personal because we don't have a reference, visual reference to think about and we have been we have been trained in our world to respond first via what we see via vision but the sound is omnipresent we always hear everything so we're quite overwhelmed in an organic and natural way but like we can close our eyes and have a break of what what's what's being injected in our brain through our eyes but we can't really stop what's happening in our ears, except if you put earplugs, which is also then kind of, in a weird way, more dangerous to navigate into the city because you can't hear what's happening around you and things like that. So what I was interested in to bring a focus on what is invisible and what you can still feel and hear around you, but you kind of forgot to pay attention to what to that sense because it can be overwhelming so i think our brain has been training to shut down what we hear and put a a natural filter on what we are experiencing as a sound pollution and what i I do i'm doing with sound projects that are happening via objects is to be more welcoming and make the audience want to engage with sound via objects because they can feel they can touch they can eat they can see and that helps most most of the time to bring them into a more experimental space that they might be at first 
uh, quite freaked out by because it's a bit too strange or too loud or too abstract. So I think the visual and physical aspect for me is a way to engage the audience with. Uh, and I'm actually thinking of Philippa Stafford, who is one of my collaborators for uh, Sisters Acousmatica. So we do this project, Sisters Acousmatica, together. And she really gave me the confidence to um, develop my passion about costume or extension of bodies and also like opening a network of collaborators. And that's how I started to work on uh, Sweet Tribology because I was interested in sound devices at Sound Preservation Association of Tasmania Museum. So I could have access to wax cylinders, ancient records, and that gave me the idea. They also have a wall of radios, which I really loved as a display, but then I was like, oh, I can just do like this kind of constellation of radio makers doing one project together. That was a good opportunity for me to meet a lot of people, of local artists. So the idea was to send each artist I was thinking of, to send them um, a wax minute. So I recorded the end of a wax cylinder, which sounds like an end of a record. So it's white noise, it's like scratching a surface. So there is no singing, there is no uh, melody. It's very abstract, I guess. It's like walking in the snow. So I send them this wax minute thinking also about uh, female empowerment, which was also something that I realized coming here, that I could maybe bring out more as a, as a carrier of care to the art scene, I guess, to just represent and make less invisible voices that are quite mute most of the time, even if myself, I was muting myself before when I was younger. So the idea was to send a, a, a little particle of sound of Tasmania to those different sound makers and they reinterpreted this wax minute and uh, what they sent back to me I printed it on a record on a vinyl that was unique so that we had 13 records and they also did visual for the records and then I cast the record and transform it into a chocolate record so the idea was to invite the audience to through eating and gathering and being together in a public space via those chocolate records. The idea was like they, they would reproduce the vulnerability of the wax uh, material that, that erase through time. So more you play the object, less you can hear the original, but more you can hear other things. And I really enjoyed the poetics of the instability of a, of a, of a material, of a matter. The fact that it's always changing and nothing is permanent. You have to adapt yourself to what's happening around you. I have a kind of naive question, I think. Great. With your practice, are you, and it's probably a bit of both, are you sharing a piece of yourself and how you interpret sound with your audience or are you inviting the audience to share their interpretation and experience of what you, you and others have created? That's a good question. Trying to think of those projects, for example. I think actually, in general, I impose quite massively what I felt. So I would deliver understanding of the world through an installation or a radioscape or performance. So, but it's, I don't think I give that much space for the audience to change the course of where I wanted to go. Mm. But I think because it's sound-based... It's so very immediate and personal that I'm hoping that through their experience of listening to my work or being immersed in my work, they will question personal questions. Like, 
they will um, feel comfortable enough to go into their own uncomfortable zones, I think. Mm. Yeah. But I think in workshops, that's where I'm way more opening the possibilities of participants to make their own. That's very important for me in my practice to give some kind of access to those do-it-yourself traditions of we are all together in a space, we have a certain amount of material, we have a theme, but then you have to do it yourself, make your own answer to what's happening around you. And that in that case, more in those kind of workshops, which are always part of my artwork, so I always give workshops wherever I go, and before I do an artwork, I do workshops with local communities. And that's when I, I'm hoping I'm just facilitating those kind of strengths and tr- make their own voice stronger, more mm-hmm. confident. Yeah, I love that. It's a really nice combination of when you were first talking at the start of that segment of inviting people to think about sound differently through your eyes and the way you described it, just there were so many layers and different shapes to it. And I was like, that's really wonderful. And I think that would have an impression on people in the way that they would experience that quite personally. But I think through you inviting them in in that way. But it's really nice also to hear that facilitatory role that you play as part of your mm. practice and exhibition exhibitions you're listening to that's what i call science and we're talking about radiophonics and soundscapes my name is anna abella and i'm joined by neve chapman along with our expert guest dr julia druin a Tasmanian-based artist and curator. So we just left before talking a little bit about the workshops that you do and I'm always so impressed when people who are experts in their field can break down and express intricacies of their work on Twix um, and you're taking this even a step further by doing this with children or just doing it with random members of the public. Can you talk a little bit about why you choose to engage with children and the wider community with your work? Children were... Very early on part of my world, as I had children <laughs> early. So I always felt like they were part, part of my research, my quest about what what is important around us, why this sound is triggering me, why does this sound make me go on, want to go to sleep. So I also was doing this radio show in Paris and I used a lot of my family as a material so I would ask them questions, I would record our dinners. And so the, the community I was living with was very much part of my practice and inspiration. My two children gave me best the best titles, ID of my work. And I didn't make them sign any consent form, but I've asked them consent to use their voice in that way for example we were on holidays with my daughter and she was with a friend and they were eating ice creams and they were imagining that those ice creams were persona and they were eating them at the same time so the shapes was changing and they were melting and at some point i could hear one sentence in their conversation which was and then we say i married a dead ice cream (laughs) and i thought that was really weird and disturbing but also cute and you know, it was just um, making me sparkle a lot of ideas. So I took that title, I Married a Dead Ice Cream, <laughs> to Spain, where I got commissioned to do a radio work in public space, where I invited 24 artists around the world to um, respond to that title. And 
send a soundtrack, which I, I curated all the soundtracks, and then it was on a public space in Spain. With uh, we collaborated with an ice cream maker who did specific ice creams with really strange taste and ingredients like with ash and it was like yeah titles with sound related names instead of vanilla you know it was like i don't know i can't remember but the whole idea was to again bring people in a public space welcoming it was the ice creams and radio receivers and the work of those 24 artists were broadcast live on that plaza for a day and it was made twice and people really enjoyed the ice cream first even if they get a bit disturbed by the names or they don't understand why people are just sitting there with big radios and even lying on the floor and why do people do that and then they're part of it and they like it so it was a a good way for me to engage with again different age range of audience so you had the grandfathers and the the kids playing around on the plaza randomly but also working with children for me is always an inspiration because you can see that at a certain age they start to be reformatted by whatever context whichever context they're growing in and i feel like when i work with young people they um, there is a moment when I can still nourish and cherish the, the the freedom they have in their imagination and initiatives and and I can see sometimes the confidence is just beautifully growing through a workshop, for example, when they arrive and they're very shy and then through the the workshop and new 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 meeting new people they they get more confident and they get amazing ideas um it's it's in a way it's like observing a a way of unlearning what they've been learning. But in those kind of safe space, they can just be themselves. They can try something and fail. They can uh, question things that might be not questionable in other contexts, which that's what I'm I'm interested in because they still have such a a fresh and refreshing understanding of the world that it's... um, I, I think they're the most efficient explorers i love that children as efficient explorers (laughs) beautiful i was just wondering if we could finish up julia by just you reflecting on what role science and technology play in your practice or in that ability to play as an artist and to create for example the chocolate records i had to do like a year of research to actually succeed to make a chocolate record that could be heard and then eaten in a certain temperature so I had few failed attempts when the temperature of the festival was too hot. So it was just melting. <laughs> but I'm always quite interested in science that has no s- sensible purpose. <laughs> that really questioned me about oh, what is this object doing? For example, I love going up shopping, tip shop. And I love uh, browsing around and find objects that I'm, I'm really confused about what are they made for. All this machi- machi- machinery and engineering for a piece of material. And, and I'm like, what is it? What is that for? So I think I have always this um, curiosity about what are the tools we're using? Can we make our own tools? And how can we make them? Can we recycle different things? Can we get an an old idea and revisit it. So I quite love and I enjoy the humor of repurposing uh, pieces of making 
or prog- how do you say to progress in our society uh, in an absurd way because mm-hmm. it really question also my own habits and and also just like push a bit my thinking about how 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 we gonna transform the future like what do we do with what we have but um otherwise in a sci- via a scientific way the the cross the interest in science is um I, I guess in sound it's first i mean if you use sound it's already you think oh it's very technologic you have to know how to use a, a recorder and edit sound on your computer on a software and so all of that already is quite technology based but i'm i'm very also interested in non-filtered listening so listening through your body <laughs> and no any amplification objects but i'm also interested in high technology device that can allow you to listen to the planets for example which I'm really fascinated by to be able to listen to dead stars for example in Tasmania the what's the name oh the, the radio telescope by, by the airport yeah yes amazing yeah so you could yeah you could hear through this massive scientific um, lab you can hear um, yeah jupiter planet or dead star pulse it's just fascinating because you really feel you really a speck of dust in the <laughs> universe and you're wondering, what can I do with my little speck? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. And I think that's a beautiful note to finish the show on. What can we do with our little speck? Thanks so much for today's episode. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. And I'd like to thank co-host Anna Bella for introducing me to our expert guest, Dr. Julia Druan. And for your time, Julia, thank you. Uh, my name's Neve, and I hope you enjoyed today. And also maybe check out what's happening on our socials this week because I feel like we're going to have a lot to share. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. Gemmaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.